You guys can turn in your Bibles or open your smartphones to your Bible app to uh, the book of Psalms. Uh, We are continuing in our Psalm sermon series, Scale the Mountain, uh, worshiping God from the songs of his people. And today we're going to be in Psalm 119. Now, some of you might be like, oh no, this is going to be like a four-hour sermon because Psalm 119 is actually the longest chapter in the Bible. But good news we're just going to do the first eight verses, okay? So we're actually going to be in Psalm 119 for the whole month of November because it's really foundational to how the Psalms work and is really important uh, kind of throughout this uh, in our lives and then in, in the book of Psalms. And so we're going to be in this uh, for four weeks and we're just going to take little chunks of it to kind of get a hold of the book or of the chapter. So every person... I believe, has a longing to be considered blameless in the eyes of someone. Blameless in someone's eyes. Now, depending upon your upbringing or your culture or the place you are in life, that looks different. For some people, it might be being blameless before your parents. For some people, it might be being blameless before some sort of Uh, cultural ideas or forces at work that you would be considered uh, in the know before friends or before family. And for some of us here, it's before God, that we want to be blameless before God. And depending upon who we're trying to be blameless in front of, well, that determines what we think being blameless looks like, what moral authority we look to, is dependent upon where we're looking to be blameless. That's the the way or the path to being blameless or to being holy. Because here's the thing. We all have a version of holiness. The question is not whether we think there is holiness or not, some kind of holiness. The question is, what do we think defines what it means to be blameless or holy? If you think I'm wrong, say something which is the complete opposite perspective from other people on social media, and watch how even the most live and let live people will come after you. See, we kind of all understand that there's right and wrong, and we just have different understandings of what that means, but we live in a place in which we we say that we don't want to pursue anything that is some sort of moral authority over us, And yet we impose that upon each other in very real ways. We do have an understanding of what holiness is. And that's what we're going to talk about today, is about holiness from Psalm 119. Now, Psalm 119 is 22 eight-verse stanzas, right? So it's pretty long, and it's 22 eight-verse stanzas because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and it's actually an acrostic. And not only is it an acrostic, each line of the stanza is, starts with the letter that it starts with, right? So this first eight verses starts with the Hebrew letter Aleph, and all eight verses start with that letter. So it's a very detailed structure. Now, the psalm itself is primarily about God's word. It's primarily about God's word. And we're going to notice as we're in this for the next month that there are a number of different words used, a a lot of different language about what God's word is. 
It's going to use the word law or statutes, uh, path or a way, commandments, testimonies, regulations, decrees, promises. All of these are synonyms for God's word in its total. Now, part of the reason it uses all these different words is because it's fitting into this acrostic structure, right? And so that's part of the reason why the author uses a bunch of different words, but also because God's word is made up of many parts. There is testimonies and God's law and regulations and decrees and promises. But when we're looking at Psalm 119, we shouldn't assume that when it uses the word promise, it's only speaking of the promises of God. And when it uses the word law, it's only speaking about the law. Really, both of them are synonyms for the whole of God's word, which includes law and promises. All right? So as we're reading through this, we don't want to look at the individual parts and assume that this verse is only talking about that one individual part. We want to say that that individual part is standing in for the idea of the whole of God's word. The idea of the whole of God's word. So Psalm 119 begins by saying, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, whose who walk in the law of the Lord. This is the ESV version of it. I'm going to be in the NLT, but I, I like the way the ESV, I think, translates this more effectively in the first verse. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. Whose way is blameless. The question that I have for us this morning is, is what I started with, that we all understand that there's some level of holiness or blamelessness that we are pursuing the question is, what path are we taking to get there? What is the way to blamelessness? What is the way or the path? You see, because God's word, as the psalmist is going to argue, is a way or a path. It's not simply a set of truths to be, to be believed. It is that, yes, but it's not simply that. It's more. It's not simply a set of rules to be followed, though there are those but not simply those. It's not simply a worldview or a philosophy to be debated and understood. It certainly does have that, but it's not simply that. It is a way or a path, a whole new way of living to be embraced, believed, and trusted. It's not simply a map that we carry around about life with God, but a map that we use to journey with God. A map to be trusted enough to actually follow. So the question for us is, what way are you on? Again, as I mentioned, I think we all have some idea of what it means to be blameless, and I want to lump these kind of ideas into three basic categories of what it means to be blameless. We're going to look at the way of unholy blamelessness, which sounds like a contradiction, but hopefully it will make sense even as a contradiction when we get there. The way of self-made blamelessness, so the way of unholy blamelessness, the way of self-made blamelessness, and then the way of gospel blamelessness. So, let's look at the first eight verses of Psalm 119. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. 
I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. So what is this? What is this walking in the law of the Lord? What does this look like for us? Well, it gave us several characteristics as we walk through this, right? It is a joyful way. Use that word a couple of times right in the beginning. It is a joyful way. It is a way where we obey his laws. Where we search for God. Where we do not compromise with evil. Where we walk only in his paths. We keep his commandments carefully. We consistently do so. No shame. Right? Did you catch that? Uh, I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. Take God's word. Read it. Compare it to my life and be like, well, Doing pretty good. No shame. Learning the righteous regulations of God, living as we should, and obeying. All right. You guys got all that? We're ready to go home, right? Close up shop. Easy as it, easy as it is, right? Just, just do those things. This isn't that complicated, guys. Just walk in the way of the Lord. Follow His law. Well, this is where we begin to run into some problems, right? First, why should we listen to God's word in the first place? Now, I know all of you are like, okay, well, like we're in church. So like, come on, we got that part figured out. We want to follow God's law. Well, I, yeah, I think so. Except I think sometimes we're more influenced by the world around us than we care to admit. See that culture is uh, sort of like air and you just have to breathe it in. And so it's all around us. And so we do breathe things in. So I want to look first at the way of unholy blamelessness. What do I mean by the way of unholy blamelessness? Well, in the book of Judges, chapter 21, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. This is at the very end of the book of Judges in the Old Testament. And the book of Judges, if you've never read the book of Judges... Uh, just make sure you are well caffeinated when you sit down to read it. It's kind of a depressing book. It's just like they mess up and then it's like, okay, well, God's going to save you with this judge. And then it's like, okay, sweet. We're good now, right? And then they immediately, they're like, oh, awesome. God saved us. Let's go worship idols again, right? And, and so then like it's over and over and over again. And, and it ends in this way of saying there's no king and everyone just does whatever's right in their own eyes. If we were to come up with a life verse for our culture, this would probably be it, right? Everyone does whatever's right in their own eyes. The way of unholy blamelessness. You see, in our culture, there is a basic happy inconsistency about moral authority, right? We say that there is no moral authority. Anything goes. In fact, any problems that we have is a remnant of the idea of a moral authority. We want to be free from any moral authority over our lives. Well, except for that sometimes we find people to be so evil that they need to be canceled, held accountable, and taken down, right? It's a basic happy inconsistency that we have in our culture, that we find people to be evil, and we say there's no real moral authority. You do whatever you 
pleases you, right? Now, we got to nuance this. This isn't some like gotcha moment for our culture because we actually all are exactly like this, which we'll get to, right? But simply to point out, we do have strong moral convictions. We do have strong moral convictions. We are people made in God's image, and we have strong moral convictions because of that. We have a sense of justice. And currently, that's a huge emphasis in our culture is a sense of justice. And oftentimes, we get that right. We're angry about things that we should be angry about because they're not right. That's true. But the problem lies in our consistency around those things. Where do we find that this outrage comes from? Where do we rest this moral authority? And maybe it's uh, collectively determined, that we all collectively determine what that moral authority is. But the problem with that is some of the ways we talk about things cancels pretty much everyone, all people, before like 10 minutes ago. Uh, they're all like totally wicked people, right? Like even some of the people that are heroes now uh, have said or done unforgivable things just like, you know, a few years ago, right? And so there is this sort of inconsistency of how we apply this as a culture. So uh, it, it, it's interesting because there is this sort of dogmatism about this unholy holiness. Right? If you're not in line with this idea that anything goes, then you are opposed to that and, and, and morally wrong. Which is an inconsistency, right? Because if anything goes, then why not the position that you don't think goes, right? Like, there is this sort of tension in the midst of our culture. Uh, sometimes the dogmatism around those things looks kind of the same as like a purity culture uh, with strict rules and a lot of shaming into conforming behavior. You see, it's actually a way. It's a path. Now, we might say, okay, okay, I get that argument, but we're not walking on that path. We're here. But sometimes we do walk on that path. Sometimes we base our thoughts about things in the world off of the positions of other people that we know rather than on God's word. Sometimes we actually come to our conclusions first before we go to God's word to decide what does God's word say about this thing, whatever's happening in the world. Sometimes we're afraid that if we have a position that's deemed morally unacceptable in our culture that we won't Share it because we're afraid of what might come from it. So sometimes we are walking that path. Sometimes we are walking that path. But mostly the way we walk that path is by hiding the fact that we're on that path. Most of the time we say, no, we follow God's word, but when we're not around anyone who also follows God's word... We do whatever is right in our own eyes, right? Like most of the time, we do end up following what we want to follow and not what God's word says for us. This is the basic reality for what it means for us to be both made in God's image, but also broken and fallen and running away from God. Okay, 
So if this path of unholy blamelessness isn't going to work, what's the answer? Well, what if we try the path of self-made blamelessness? We are going to follow God's word. That's what we're going to do. Now, there's two ways to make your own blamelessness. One is to lower the standards of God's word. Because the reality is, everything that I listed out earlier about obeying God's law and all of these things, uh, we struggle to do that. And so if we want to make our own blamelessness, we will lower the standards of God's word to something that we can actually obey. We'll make the Bible something that I can obey, which means we'll probably focus on a few of these outward things Uh, A few of the do-nots of the Bible. Like, don't do this thing, don't do that thing. Because the reality is, God actually commands us to do lots of things. Like, love our neighbor. Actually, love our enemy. That one's hard, so let's lay that one aside. Let's focus on don't do this thing, right? And we'll lower our standards. I'm going to quote a couple of times from this book uh, today. It's called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification, Growing in Holiness by Living in Union with Christ by a guy named Walter Marshall. Um, This is a book that uh, the staff team and I went through a few years ago. It's one of my favorites. And uh, if if you want to pick it up after I uh, talk about it a little bit today, come talk to me afterwards because there's a specific version that's in updated English language that's easier to read uh, because the original is pretty difficult to read. And so uh, make sure you get the right one. But uh, one of the things he says in here, In talking about this reality, he says, those who try to be saved by their sincere obedience, right? So he uses this phrase, sincere obedience. This is the self-made blamelessness. Trying to sincerely follow God's word. I'm going to do it. I'm going to sincerely do it. Those who try to be saved by their sincere obedience will inevitably reduce the perfection actually required by the law of God. They have to reduce the requirements of the law so much that the nature of true obedience is lost altogether. The reality is that if we look at God's word, it requires so much of us. And so we will, if we're going to try to obey it in a way to make us blameless, we're going to have to lower the standards. Another way of self-made blamelessness is the opposite, to raise the standards, except not really for me, just for other people. Uh, It doesn't matter about my standards, but for other people, we're going to raise the standards. And this way of self-made blamelessness really comes into uh, what has been rightly critiqued over the last few years of of, uh, a purity culture. A culture in which there are certain things in God's word that we're going to focus on more than anything else, and maybe it's sexual purity, maybe it's not doing uh, uh, certain uh, crazy wild activities, whatever it is, right? Whatever's going to lead to a place where it looks like you might be sinning in some way. And we're going to bring a lot of shame and a lot of condemnation around those things. We're going to use public shaming to kind of modify behavior. We're going to make sure you know that these few things are way out of bounds. And don't even even hint at it. Don't even talk about it. If you potentially struggle with something, 
do not say anything because it's really bad. That's really, really bad. Can't be saved that way. There's no hope for you, right? And we're going to use this sort of shaming culture to modify your behavior. Regardless of how I live, right? Yeah, it doesn't really matter in this version of self-made blamelessness. As long as I can see that I'm doing better than someone else, well, then I'm okay. What, what, what did the psalmist say? He said, when I, I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. The basic way of self-made blamelessness is to say, I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with my neighbor. As long as I'm doing better than this person, then I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, right? I can at least point to someone who is worse than me. So Lord, you know, take it easy on me. Now, does this work? Does this work? Does self-made blamelessness actually make us feel blameless? Like if we were to right now in this mindset of as long as I'm doing better than my neighbor or better than my enemy, if the Lord were to come and say, okay, how you doing with my law? Would we be like, yeah, we feel pretty good. I don't think so. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see, the way of unholy blamelessness isn't going to work. Because we don't get any blamelessness. We don't feel good about it. Even when we do what is right in our own eyes, it ends like the book of Judges, which is kind of a disaster. Right? And when we are in charge of making our own blamelessness, it ends in disaster. Because we're not very good at being blameless. So we need a new way, the way of gospel blamelessness. When I was reading that, this uh, psalm this week, this first phrase of, of uh, blessed are those who walk in the way of the Lord, immediately I was struck by the word way, and I thought of the book of Acts. Acts 9, this is uh, about Paul before he's converted to Jesus he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the rest of any of the followers of the way. See, the early church, before they knew what to call them, they just called them the way. They were following in the way of Jesus. It was a way of life. It was a path. It was a direction. The way of Jesus. The way of gospel holiness. Now, what were those phrases that we looked at earlier, right? You remember about obedience to the law? It was obeying God's law, searching for God, not compromising with evil, walking only in his paths, keeping his commandments carefully. Okay, so we can't lower God's standard. We can't run and, and listen to whatever our culture says about holiness. So let's just obey the law. That's the blameless way. Well, the problem is that Paul, after he's converted to Christ, writes these words in Romans. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows how sinful we are. Now, Paul has spent the first three chapters of the book of Romans making this case. We don't have time to read all of those because, you know, that'd be like reading all of Psalm 119 this morning. So we don't have time to, to get to all of those. But what Paul lays out for us is, is 
that the law shows us where we get it wrong. That when God's law is read before us, when we compare our life with God's commands, we find ourselves to be guilty, not, not ashamed. We find ourselves to be guilty. That there's no person who can fully obey the law. And it just condemns us. So, so why does the psalmist say this? Why does the psalmist say that you can be blameless? Well, because the psalmist is looking forward to another day that Paul speaks of. He says, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. There is a blamelessness that is possible without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago, right? The psalm, this psalm is pointing to, it is promising a day in which you can be made blameless apart from keeping the law. You don't have to make your own blamelessness. You can be made righteous apart from the working of the law, from the keeping the requirements of the law. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. That sentence is incredible. God demonstrates that he is fair and right by Making people who don't follow the law righteous? That doesn't make any sense. How is that fair and just? You're not getting what you deserve. It's only fair and just because someone stood in your place and got what you deserved. And if you believe in Jesus, you get what he deserved. His blamelessness is credited to you. If you believe in Jesus, you get his perfect righteousness. His perfect record is now yours. You are now blameless before him, before God. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted before God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. This is the goodness of the gospel. That God has done a mighty work in our place. That God has done everything that is required for us to be made right. Paul, uh, Paul goes on to say, 
in chapter 5, he goes on to say this, Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the glorious news of the gospel, that you are made right with God apart from working out righteousness in the law, and you are given the righteousness of Jesus. So that even the more and more that you sin, you get grace? Isn't that what he just said? Isn't that what he just said? But as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. This is glorious. You don't just get forgiven of your sins and wiped a clean slate. So often we think about the cross in this way that says, okay, well, I disobeyed God. He forgave me because Jesus died for my sin. Therefore, my slate is clean. It's all wiped away. Now I've got to figure out how to be righteous. No, that's not what it says. You get more than a clean slate. That's what Adam had. You get more than that. You get Christ. To quote, Walter Marshall again, he said, When God sanctifies you, he does more than just give you the natural holiness that Adam first had in the Garden of Eden. When God sanctifies you, he uses his almighty power to give life to those who are dead in sin. In order to live a life of holiness, you need God's almighty power. You now live by a higher principle of life than was given to Adam at first. You live by Christ and his spirit living and acting in you. Now this is the spot right here is the spot where we get to a crossroads in our path. Okay? You have the righteousness of Jesus. It's fully yours. It's credited to you. You are blameless in God's sight. And right here, this natural instinct rises up in us that says, well, hold up. People are going to sin a whole bunch if you tell them that. You just gave everybody a free pass to do whatever they want and get away with it? That's what happened, right? This is literally the next thing that Paul says. Well then, should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? Right? Paul anticipates our question. If we never ask this question, you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand how free the gospel is, how wonderful the gospel is, if you've never asked this question. Wait a second. Jesus fully paid for everything. Past, present, future. I am fully blameless because of what he did in obeying the law, not because of what I do in obeying the law. God counts that to me fully, and it's over. All I got to do is believe. Why don't I just keep sinning then? If you've never asked that question, I want to challenge you to wrestle with the gospel more. Now, Paul's going to answer that question for us. It's going to answer it for sure. But if we don't ask that question, we haven't wrestled with how glorious forgiveness is. How good 
the gospel is. How amazing it is. Now Paul goes on to say, Of course not. Since we have died to sin, how can we continue to live in it? Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Here's the reality that we now have in the gospel. You see, the question, should we just, like, did we just get a free pass to keep sinning? Is asking the wrong question. It's asking the question, how much sin can I get away with and still get to heaven? The question is, I now get Jesus? How can I get more of Jesus? That's the new question that we ask. You're now dead to sin. It no longer has any dominion over you. You know that this here, 611, is the very first command in the book of Romans? Consider yourself dead to sin. It's not even really a command, Paul. What's the way of blamelessness? Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. Consider yourself already dead to sin and alive to Christ. Nope. I think I have another. Well, I thought I had another quote here, but maybe not. Nope, I don't. It's fine. Okay. Consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God through Christ. Okay. Now, what does that look like practically? I want to give us, I'm going to go to the whiteboard for a sec, okay? Don't worry, I don't have a story with stick figures like Rome had. (laughs) Completely unnecessary, but amazing. All right. So the reality is, that we have been talking about this glorious standard of God's word. It is glorious. We can't lower it. There's no way to get righteousness apart from reaching that standard. And the problem for us is that we're like down here, right? When it comes to righteousness, we're down here. And what this has been saying to us is that Jesus bridges this gap for us. He brings us to God's standard. He gives us his perfect life if we trust in him. Now, what we often do when we believe in Jesus is that we either, uh, well, we start to lower God's standard so that we can obey it, or we start to think more highly of ourselves because we're pretty good. 
We're doing pretty good, right? But do you know what this does? This makes Jesus smaller. Makes the cross smaller. You know what that does? That makes us ask the question, how much sin can I get away with and still get to heaven? Not how do I experience more of Jesus? If we want to ask the question, how do I experience more of Jesus? We need to understand that we have not yet even begun to tap into how glorious God is. God's righteousness is so far beyond. Remember when we were in the book of Revelation? Like, there's these incredible pictures of God's glory. He is so good. It's terrifying. We need to dig more into that and have the freedom to say, God, you are better than I can imagine. And you are more holy than I can imagine. Your standards are more pure than I can imagine. That's what God's word is meant to do for us. That's what Psalm 119 is meant to have us do, right? To wake up and meditate on God's law. To know that his word is sweeter than honey. He is righteous. But the more you do that, the more you do that, the more you will compare your life to God's holy law. And what you'll do is find out, well, I'm actually far worse than I thought. Now, the, the, the hope of this graph is not to say, like, here I was angry with my neighbor and here I killed my neighbor. Like, that's not, that's not where we're going. <laughs> what we're hoping to find here is, here I wanted to kill my neighbor, and then here I was like, oh, I, like, they didn't even do anything to me and I had this inclination that I hate them. Right? The more time you spend in God's law, the more you'll find, man, my motives are super jacked up. I actually did something nice for my neighbor, but I did it because of a bad motive in me. Oh my goodness. Right? Have you guys ever had this experience where you're like, wait a second, I thought I was supposed to be getting better here? Like I thought over time I was going to like, like, oh, I wasn't going to have these random thoughts that come up in my mind that are really wicked. No, 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 no. That, that, that doesn't go away this side of glory, guys. And the more we spend time in God's word, the more we discover how jacked up our motives are. But why then does the psalmist say, as uh, then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands? Well, because guys, this is still true. The gospel is still true. And now, I want more of Jesus. Because he's so good. He has still redeemed me. I actually know more of what he's redeemed me from. And now, when these things come up, when these thoughts come up, when, these, when the sin comes up, when the sin that I keep doing comes up again and again, I can actually say, I'm dead to that. It has zero power over me. I don't have to say yes to it anymore. It's completely dead. I am now righteous in Christ. I now am blameless before God. I am holy before Him. And only if we see this way of gospel freedom will we actually love God the way we're supposed to. Because the reality is that we can't love God or love neighbor if we're always afraid that he's looking over our shoulder ready to get us. 
That's the way of self-made blamelessness. The way of freedom in the gospel is to say, I'm free to love boldly even if I make mistakes because Jesus already loved me. I'm free to pursue the deep things of the law, the justice and the mercy required. I'm free to actually dig into the depth of my heart and confess the very real sinful things that come up in me. I'm not ashamed of them or afraid of them because Jesus died for them. It's the only way I can experience real freedom. You are going to pursue some kind of holiness. But is that a holiness that's going to come and condemn you? Or is it a holiness that's going to come and pursue you and die for you? The way of Jesus is far better. So let's run to the way of Jesus together. Right, we're going to stand now and we're going to read these first eight verses of Psalm 119 together in response to hearing God's word. We're going to read it together as it was meant to be read. So let's read this together. Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey his laws and search for him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil, and they walk only in his paths. You have charged us to keep your commandments carefully. Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. Then I will not be ashamed when I compare my life with your commands. As I learn your righteous regulations, I will thank you by living as I should. I will obey your decrees. Please don't give up on me. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, that is our plea. Please don't give up on us. And we know that you won't because you went to the cross for us. So that we could be made righteous. Jesus, would you help us to see the glorious good news of the gospel and be transformed because of it? to pursue you. Jesus, would you be honored in that, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.